This is Mutant, and you're listening to Dialogues at the End of Democracy. Welcome back to Mutant. If you're joining us for the first time, we're quickly going to recap just what it is that we're doing here. Mutant is a dictionary, the first ever of democracy. This moment that we're in is not just another, we believe, in the long and often very fraught history of democracy. Rather, there's something exemplary in this moment of unraveling in which we have rendered both people and planet more vulnerable than ever before and created antagonisms that we seem to not know how to exit. But these civic fractures have effected another catastrophe, the loss of a vocabulary or shared language with which to understand this moment. Mutant is that language. Every episode is devoted to one letter of the Roman alphabet and to two words with that letter Together, those two words, we believe, inflect and inform something crucial about this moment in our contemporary politics and to our democratic futures. In this episode on the letter I, we enter and inhabit the skins of two words, indifference and identity. Ashwari, when we spoke in one of our previous episodes of the law and liberalism, You spoke of the figure of the migrant, the stateless, the one who exists only when he or she is a subject of or subject to the law. And then when they leave, when they when they take to the high seas, when they leave their borders, when they drown at sea or they wash up on our shores, they belong to no one. Against the backdrop of this kind of sort of catastrophic cruelty and neglect, I want to begin with a formulation that we return to over and over at Mutant, but I think it may be time to really enter into it deeply, is of the thinker Hannah Arendt and the right to have rights. Is Arendt speaking of the right to identity or to personhood, or is she speaking to something even more fundamental than that? That's a great place to uh, begin to think about something as uh, unstable uh, and in fact downright ambiguous uh, as identity. Uh, One of the many things that fascinate me about Hannah Arendt is her reluctance to use uh, the concept or the notion of identity. Um, Part of why she's so skeptical about identity is is because she does not believe that the human subject is an ontological given. There is nothing pre-given to us through or in our humanity. We become human in the process and through the act of recognizing one another as human beings. Our very identity, therefore, of being something more than human is mere attribution. When Hannah Arendt is writing about the right to have rights in that eighth chapter of the second part of her classic work, Origins of Totalitarianism, she 
wants to remind her readers of a very simple fact that we become human not because we were born human but because we belong to a broader community of human beings and it is this belonging that for our end is the ground of active ethical and political solidarity identity cannot be the ground of all solidarity oppression can be identity cannot and when she refers to these people who have been rendered stateless who have been evicted who are dispossessed who do not own a homeland who might perish in the high seas without even being counted she's speaking of this loss of community this loss of belonging after all if they were to be identified as something if there was any other identity that we could ascribe to them what would that identity be for in modern life under conditions of liberal democratic modernity itself our primary identity has always been national identity the passport we hold the societies in which we vote are the primary markers of political identity migrancy cuts through that national and nationalist universalism because these are migrants and refugees who are seeking asylum in the in between land between nation states the sea has no law after a point and so when they die they die and belong to nobody i am glad you begin with the right to have rights because it is it is a very significant way i believe to understand why the primary ground of all political action needs to be solidarity rather than identity we'll weave in and out of both our concepts and words um as we always do but i think more acutely um in this episode than any other because i want to come to the idea of indifference um as you have brought us to the point of solidarity there is an easy sort of conviction and almost a uh, sort of held truism that indifference is passive but i think we know and agree here that indifference is quite deliberately and and consciously not passive indifference is an action indifference is willful choice in a sense indifference is um paradoxically one might say not the lack of interest but interest right interest of the self and i wanted to understand what role self interest and greed play in this space of um indifference to the other and to the absence of any solidarities with those that fall outside our area of interest yeah if we were to take a quick step back maybe half a step back we could first therefore using the question you have framed simply say that the the that 
one of the one of the compulsions today of the new democratic condition we have come to inhabit is to seek an identity not the grounds only of solidarity especially in majoritarian coalitions and majoritarian formations that that identity seeks not solidarity but a certain regime of indifference so for a for a very long time and even now one thinks here of other forms of liberatory identity politics such as black lives matter uh is a fascinating example of what identity can do for mobilization and for political and 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 social change but by and large what we need to now inscribe at the heart heart of identity is a certain ability to hurt someone as being the cohering or the glue around which people mobilize and it is true of uh, of electoral democracies in general there could be many specific and local conditions under which these majoritarian coalitions driven by a desire to hurt come to power italy for example just some months ago chose for the first time an openly fascist government there are elections coming up in over a dozen liberal and electoral democracies in the next 18 months that will be a decisive moment for democratic mobilization but more importantly to your question to democratic solidarity what i want us to think about when we think of identity is not simply this form and structure of solidarity that identity enables i also want us to think of movements and solidarities that coalesce not around identity but around indifference right and that is where i think um uh, uh, uh the concept of interest of combined interest in something um comes into play in fact in fact the word that most tightly compresses this vacillation of identity between care on the one hand and indifference on the other is interest now often interest is seen as attachment to something acquisitive we want to acquire something possess something we have an interest in something jb macpherson's classic work uh, the theory of possessive individualism defines the the modern identity in terms of this possessive individualism our entire universe is structured around or even scaffolded by a desire to possess and acquire we were saying in an earlier episode how therefore property and propriety have been historically and philosophically linked in the creation of modern modern subjects and 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 in a way interest is that interest is an attachment to acquire things one desires and acquires a thing or under slavery a person and the thing or the person becomes an object of interest we have also already said that the very line to use judish clark's term the very line between persons and things is blurred we acquire or need to or desire we have the desire to acquire both but only because we can then reduce one into to the other 
persons into things. That is the compulsion and the force with which we want to possess something. And I say this uh, simply because this compulsion is a part of identity. This compulsion to possess someone else is a part of modern consciousness. This compulsion to acquire more power, to amass more things, to command more people, if only to turn those people into things, is a profoundly modern interest. But there is another interest, which is equally formative to identity, but which still remains, I think, less explicitly articulated in our moral psychology or even our political psychology, the active interest in disregarding that which one does not desire and does not want to let come close to, let alone possess. An interest in that, let us think this carefully, an interest in that which one does not even desire, right? Which can only mean one thing, an active destruction of that which does not affect me, right? An interest in destroying those things in which we are not even interested. And I've said this before, our our relationship to ruins, our relationship to monuments, our relationship to medieval tombs, our relationship to mosques, our ability to stand back and see them raised to the ground. All of these compulsions have a certain strain of interest. Let us not confuse, as I'm saying, because this flipping of interest is not revolutionary disinterest. Disinterest can be democratic. Disinterest is when I am willing to disobey my family, when I am willing to disobey the fascist common sense around me and vote for something democratic. There I have cut through my primary and primal interest in my own family and filial bonds. Now, again, to repeat, there is a name for this filial bond that is profoundly private with a devastating political consequence, and that is caste. To break out let alone to annihilate caste, is to move to that level, to move to that kind of radical disinterest. What we are now seeing in identity is not that disinterest. What we are seeing in identity is the cohering of a new kind of interest in those things which neither belong to us, which we neither want to possess, and which does not affect us. Shops and mosques do not affect us. But in their destruction is a new form of interest. 
almost an ascetic form of interest. And I say ascetic not lightly because religiosity has a very profound link here with the sort of destructive capacities we want to mobilize. So the flipping of interest is important because this interest is not revolutionary disinterest. It is instead interest formed out of active disregard. This passion we have of active disdain. It's a bond, a passion, for sure, even a bond. One could even say, slightly controversially, even a solidarity, a majoritarian solidarity forced out of active disgust of those who we do not desire. We return here to indifference, as you were saying, for a reason. We return to indifference and we must, as you were suggesting, return to indifference every time we think of identity today. Because an interest to destroy a person or break a thing without any particular desire to possess or even avenge it can only be a function of indifference. But an indifference that is now guided by a collective interest. This is an extremely fragile point for which Judith Klar has a word. She calls it the line. I think we have blurred the line and moved past her threshold. We remember, for example, uh, her famous caution. It is not important that we know where the line is. It is important, however, that we never forget that there be a line. And I think we have forgotten where that line is, where identity, which used to be a word for and a, a word for the possibilities of civic association, has suddenly become a word for mobilization of collective indifference, a collective compulsion to destroy things which not only do not belong to us, but in which we have no interest. That is where I think the threshold of what we have called the neo-democratic condition is crossed. The person is now a thing. So that his or her personhood itself is marked by a profound and shocking disposability. Remember, um, just about just about over a decade ago, the picture of a boy washed ashore. Right, a little boy in blue shorts and a red jersey becomes a global moment of recognition for what we can do and what we are capable of 
when disposability becomes our driving compulsion. And I am quite uh, hesitant to say that all of this was simply the law. All of this was simply bureaucracy. If all of this was simply bureaucracy, some public bureaucrats, some government would have been held accountable. But the very fact that these governments are never voted out of power tells us that they have managed to mobilize identity for something else. And this will take us into a slightly deeper philosophical ground because it will help us, I think, to understand that identity is a very fragile, ambiguous concept. This is perhaps why Hannah Arendt would rather have solidarity as the form or as the thread that binds us together into citizens. The antithesis of solidarity, Arendt writes, is pity. Right? This is what when migrants perish just 10 miles off our shores, we respond with pity. We only just simply call it empathy. Speaking to your point about governments, Ishwari, and our refusal, the refusal of citizens to hold governments to account for these catastrophes on our borders, you have previously posited that cruelty can often be an act in which the state neither participates nor interferes. In a sense, uh, the apotheosis of indifference almost. In India at the moment, to take one example, we have been seeing a sustained and brutal rise in violence, uh, caste violence, religious violence, um, of an elevated cruelty playing out. And I wonder if this is, and we have touched on this in passing uh, when we spoke of neglect and, um, you know, in our episode on the letter N, but I just wanted to return to it. I wonder if there is almost a tacit pact between the state and citizen in which the government also takes its sanction to do nothing from the majority. You know, almost that, as you spoke of it, uh, potentially controversially, the solidarity to do nothing. What I'm trying to get at here is really the question of whether it's always institutions that regulate this propensity to indifference, uh, because it seems to me here like people too bend institutions to this kind of perverse desire to do nothing. The question of institutions, another I word, is, is central to this problem and this moment. For one, institutions are, um, are most pliable or pliant instruments for those in power. On the other hand, and this is, uh, this is the aporia of democracy, it's the people who are let down most frequently by institutions, by courts, by police, uh, by public transport, people who are unable to access these institutions for redress, for justice, include sometimes these days even the press among these institutions of, of our civic and political life, of our democratic experiment on the whole. 
institutions are central to 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 indifference for this reason and this reason alone that they let down precisely the people who need them the most and here is the binding aporia of institutionalism that it is precisely the people who are let down by the institutions the most let down by the police let down by the courts let down by the justice system let down even by the press precisely those institutions that let the people down who need them the most these are the people who will fight the most for them on their behalf this is uh, what i call the long arc of our democratic tragedy the long arc of as you know uh, uh, martin luther king jr says the long uh, you know the arc of our moral universe is long but it bends towards justice um more recently tanahisi codes uh, has you know has given us a, a a powerful indictment of of mlk's hope and he's he said codes says very very clearly and explicitly i don't think it bends towards justice i don't think the arc of our moral universe bends towards justice and i think somewhere we need to if courts is right if courts is right we need to nonetheless reimagine what the shape of this arc is without lapsing into a desolation and in that sense i find this long arc to be the arc of democratic tragedy and the tragedy is that the people let down most by institutions because of their identity by the way for nothing other than their identity it could be different modes of identity or being something it could be class it could be caste it could be religion it could be your headgear in france it could be the mosques you go to in sweden it could be the school district you belong to in the united states in each of these identities are least stable and yet our civic life is stabilized precisely by those who belong to these fragile groups because they are the ones upon whom it is always incumbent to fight for institutions they are the people who come out in large numbers to vote for democratic parties the people most let down by those very parties and institutions and the third aporia here is that people who benefit the most from these institutions people who have profited and profiteered from these institutions people who have benefited and made and generated unprecedented amounts of wealth because of the stability of these very institutions are now willing to throw these institutions away in that sense i find indifference in its different modalities to be much more worthy if that is the word worthy of deconstruction indifference we were saying is not without interest or desire it's not passive it is an active malignant moving tissue that infects us 
and this is Ambedkar's word, infects us silently. The silence or this empathy that we hide behind is mere ruse. For the lack of speech, the refusal to speak does not mean an absence of language. Quite to the contrary, silence is the very language of active indifference. Silence is how power speaks when it wants to cover up its active disdain. Its silence is the mark of looking away. It is a language. It is a sign system. And later on, when we return to this question, I'm sure we will call and we will have more time to unpack this active indifference that is manifested as a passive involuntary loss of ability, of speech. How many times have we heard affluent middle classes, liberals say, this is unspeakable cruelty? It's no cruelty is unspeakable. We need to talk about it. That, that again is Judicial's profound insight. We refuse to speak about cruelty because we believe nobody's interested in it. Because nobody is cruel at the end of the day, perhaps. But this, this cultivated regime of unspeakability where language cannot penetrate the brutality of our violence stems not from, again, the loss of words, but from a certain kind of hesitation. We hesitate when we see an act of cruelty. And in fact, hesitation is the first measure towards our collective cruelty. Hesitation, let us put this even more starkly, hesitation is the glue around which the neo-democratic identity is forged. A majority of the people living in majorities, let's say, political and communal majorities living in liberal democracies are bound together not by their empathy, not by their lack of feeling, because feeling they do have, but by a certain hesitation. They hesitate when they see an act of oppression acquire a brutal form. The act of hesitation that you that you tease out um, is intricate, and I know we will come to it both in this episode, but also hesitation is in itself a concept uh, that we will examine when we come to the letter H. But I do want to ask hatred, and we have spoken of a hatred of the poor. What is the relation between hatred and indifference? Uh, hatred seems to suggest, as you spoke, an active, uh, not just disdain, but, um, but maybe a step forward, a desire to inflict harm or hurt. Um, indifference in that sense, would you call it a technique of hatred? Or is there a different relationship between that hatred and the indifference that we often see manifest? That's a, that's a very uh, important question. And, and that is very, um, uh, that's a very sensitive question. And I think on the surface, it would seem that hatred and indifference stand apart only by degrees. 
that somehow indifference is a milder form of hatred or a milder expression of hatred. There is, however, something very uh, distinct about indifference that the rage and the blindness of hatred does not have. And I think that that indifference and that 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 constituent attribute of indifference that hatred does not always have is knowledge. Indifference is curated. Indifference is cultivated. And, and this cultivation, in fact, we were saying indifference, anything, not just indifference, anything that becomes a civic value must have some epistemic ground un- underneath. For it to become a sign system between people, for you and me to be indifferent towards some vulnerable person in the same way requires us, even when we, and especially when we don't speak, a sign system, an epistemology, in other words. So indifference is rooted not in blind rage, but in a curated, cultivated epistemic framework. And perhaps knowledge, therefore, is the most irresolvable tangle in, in how we become indifferent towards others. Because it is difficult to, to, to even gauge where the abyss of human indifference would find its own bottom, precisely because it is so self-aware. Because indifference is so self-aware, it will always find rational explanations, rational causes, rational excuses for its behavior. When there is hatred, there is no compunction to legitimize it. There are signs of hatred and manifestations and expressions of hatred, but hatred does not seek legitimacy. Hatred simply seeks total extermination a total disposal. Indifference resists any such irrational limitlessness. Indifference is, has a certain kind of measure, but without any way to penetrate what that measure is. Because it always finds a nexus of causes and explanations around it. And that impenetrability of indifference that wall of knowledge and self-knowledge, that epistemic scaffolding of indifference, which we cannot penetrate easily, is what makes it or brings it closer to what Hannah Arendt would call radical evil. Indifference is closer to evil than hatred perhaps might be. And we need, again, to think of this very carefully and not hastily, but precisely because indifference has an epistemic framework or a knowledge, a curated knowledge, a set of sign systems behind it. Even if those signs are about you and I talking in absolute silence, indifference is impenetrable. And precisely because, or paradoxically, because of its impenetrability, because of this epistemic wall you cannot breach, indifference is closer to evil than hatred. Remember the final two sentences of that chapter in Hannah Arendt's work, Eichmann in Jerusalem, where she said, those Germans knew. They had lived their lives on the dictum, thou shalt not kill. And therefore, every German knew 
that they should not steal from their Jewish neighbor. They should not rat them out, as it will be called eventually. That they should not send these Jewish neighbors to their doom by giving away information of where they lived. And then she finishes that chapter by saying, but God knows this temptation to do the right thing, the Germans had totally lost. God knows they had lost that temptation to be human. Now, returning us to the main question you had raised, what makes us human here? What makes the German the German and the Jew the Jew? It's not identity. It's a certain kind of perverse interest, a certain kind of compulsive indifference that has completely torn apart any web of solidarity that might have been possible. And this is the limit of identity. This is not to say that identity is not important in politics. We were saying a few minutes ago about um, about the centrality of identity in movements like Black Lives Matter. But we need to take identity with all its ambiguities rather than as a mobilizing catchword. If we can stay with identity for a moment, I understand why you flag the limits and limitations of identity politics or identities in politics. I think particularly when wielded uh, by majoritarian hands, there is a quality of violence and a propensity to violence that attaches to identity. But the identities of the marginalized, uh, you know, the right to make that identity visible and respected is often a deep struggle and of great meaning to the marginalized. Uh, you know, the desire to live that identity out in public life, um, you know, the desire to forge communities around that identity um, is, I think, particularly important to those who find themselves at the margins. And I want to understand, therefore, is there a way to build those solidarities and to inhabit your identity without letting that identity be the limit of your political life? I think, uh, to put it simplistically almost, uh, and I'm speaking here very much of marginalized identities, is there ever a way to visibly inhabit your identity without being, uh, you know, politically imprisoned by it? My sense would be um, uh, this. This is uh, th this is a three-step question. But my my immediate sense would be uh, to to first to first understand the 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 preliminary inversion we are making in how we understand, on the one hand, minority, the, the, the category of the minority in the Arendtian sense uh, or in Ambedkar sense, and how we are trying to theorize and bring to a level of conceptual heft the category of the majority. Because it's the majority that is unspoken of. It is the majority that falls silent, as it's colloquially put, right? It's the majority, most importantly, that is unmarked. In fact, I would go as far as to say is that the identity, the, the idea of, of identity is an idea designed to 
in our political life designed to mark out people, whether you uh, have the right to wear a hijab or a headgear in public, whether or not you can use public sound systems or, uh, or, or, or loudspeakers to relay your prayers, whether or not in the United States you can um, go to certain schools or certain universities. We have always already mentioned the problem with affirmative action and the re recent uh, overturning of that. Each of these, in each of these, what is at stake and what is therefore a visible rallying point is the identity of the minority. The problem for democratic culture, democratic mentality, the very moral psychology of our democratic compact is that we are obsessed with identifiable markers within which we want to trap certain groups. At Mutant, and, and this, this goes for the entire neo-democratic condition or, or, the, or the threats of this condition we have been trying to parse out at Mutant, is that what really needs investigation is the majoritarian, the nebulousness of majoritarian identity, what sort of an, what sort of an identity it is that it goes and thrives and it infects everything around it through an unspoken system of signs where silence itself is a language, right? We don't expect the majority or the majority to behave in a certain way or dress in a certain way. They just disappear into the norm. This is why we were saying neglect is unthinkable without the easy throwing of the word normative that liberal theorists and thinkers often do. What is it that becomes normative is already encrusted and embedded in traditions of power. So our, 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 our question should actually be, not about identities that are used to define, circumscribe, and mark people out. Our question about identity should be, what sort of an identity allows its bearer to disappear in plain sight? What sort of an identity lets a bearer say everything without saying anything at all? What sort of an identity permits its bearer to be at one and the same time display profound empathy and cultivate in silence a devastating disdain for life itself? The question of identity has for long been stuck in a mire of self-knowledge. Who I am has always been linked to my, since, since Descartes, not to mention John Locke, whose uh, work on uh, understanding, as he called it, was linked, is one of the fundamental, is a, is a formative foundational text in theories of identity and difference. 
who I am is always linked to what I think. And that is already a strain of a compulsion to sovereignty. Asceticism is not a withdrawal from the world. Asceticism is a claim to a better knowledge of the world. It shares with sovereignty the same desire to master something, even when that mastery is directed towards oneself. We want to break out of that way of thinking about identity and link it to the very political, irreducibly political and juridical fact that our identities are both created by and subject to the law. And that this identity also has at its disposal the power of the law. Only in that nexus of the law and identity can what we call, we just call the majoritarian coalition, can be understood. I've never said a simple majority, a political or a communal majority is what Ambedkar disaggregates them. But we have moved to a stage where even the political and the communal majorities exchange places and therefore create what we would like to call a majoritarian coalition. And that cannot be grasped through the category only of identity. It has to be grasped to the fact that solidarities are possible on both ends of our moral and political spectrum. That majoritarian movements also have unmarked identities inscribed all over them. And that's the damaging dimension of identity. Precisely that it is unmarked, unsaid, and thrives in silence. There's um, a phenomenon that I'd like you to help us understand. And I think in a sense, it links a few of these uh, uh, concepts that we have just been speaking of. There is, and I see this in India, um, you know, when, including when Black Lives Matter, when when George Floyd's uh, murder happened, and then when that sort of eruption of of rage on the streets occurred, there is the capacity for a sort of abstract solidarity with people at the other end of the earth, right? While retaining or amplifying an incredible visceral indifference to what happens not just every day, not just in, not just in events. We, we have spoken in a previous episode of that mass migration at the time of the lockdown when hundreds of millions of Indians uh, were left stranded in, uh, you know, in unbearable temperatures without food and, and water to walk back to their villages, but not even just in those circumstances, to the everyday cruelties, to the everyday uh, depravity that the poor 
or the oppressed, the minorities. It could be the Dalit, it could be the Muslim, it could be the woman, it could be the trans community, it could be uh, a gay community um, that occurs in our very neighborhoods. And it seems to me like an abstraction, both of solidarity, but solidarity hinged on identities removed from the ones we engage with um, occurs there. I want to understand from you what the nature of this abstract solidarity is and what the nature of that sort of visceral indifference to what is outside your door is in the same moment. I, I think this is uh, th this goes right to the heart of uh, of the of the very grounding concept we have for this episode. Uh, so let's take let's let's take a pause and simply uh, disentangle two threads on two threads of what we call identity. The first thread of of any identity is self identity. How a human subject associates or what kind of attributes he associates with himself or herself or themselves. Self-identity is grounded in self-knowledge or self-judgment, a certain judgment of what one is, where one is headed, and what one is capable or incapable of doing. Right? In the classical philosophical tradition, this constellation of attributes, including the capacity or faculty of judgment, Kant would say, is linked to consciousness. The word is consciousness. Right? Now, the debate, the, the debate here is, does consciousness have an ontological status? Are we human beings simply by the virtue of having a consciousness and the ability to think? Or is there something more? Right? For, I mean, thinking of Kant, the, the most interesting example or reader of Kant is Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi whose duty it was to see that the trains left for the camps on time. And when he's being tried in Jerusalem, after being taken away, of, uh, kidnapped from uh, Argentina, he starts reading from Kant saying he was following only the moral law. Right. So here you see a person identifying himself with the law, and that itself becomes an identity, right? The law-abiding citizen, as Arendt calls it. In the same way, different attributes come together to give us our identity. The, the the problem is that none of these attributes that we ascribe or impute to ourselves or any person attributes or, or thinks he or she possesses is ever free of attributes of others and the conditions in which others live around her or him. Right? This is why identity is a moving line rather than a stable core of our moral life. This is why solidarity can have such powerful effect. Right? A lot of uh, Indians might not have ever heard or met of a dispossessed Palestinian. 
But for the last 60 years, governments chosen by the people have expressed as an official creed their solidarity with the cause of Palestinian self-determination right? and their critique of steady disposition, dispossession in, in the Gaza and the West Bank. Right? You don't have to personally know some vulnerable person out there in order to express solidarity. In that sense, you are absolutely right. Solidarity can be abstract. But solidarity's power comes from the fact that I don't have to claim to know that thing better than that person. I don't have to speak in their voice. I don't have to pretend that I have gone through the same thing. And national identity is particularly pernicious in this regard because it cuts through that possibility of solidarity. When, when Black Lives Matter became a movement, a global movement, almost all the top stars, movie stars, and not just in India, wrote expressing their solidarities. They tweeted out their solidarity. But the moment Beyonce or Rihanna write something about migrancy and how they're forced on their foot during the lockdown, or uh, I think Rihanna wrote about the farmers' protest very directly, you had the leading figures of Indian public life, crit cricketers, captain of national captains or and ex-captains of national teams, movie stars, Talking about what, and this is very, very crucial. Those tweets that resembled one another always invoked India's sovereignty. And this is Hannah Arendt's point. Sovereignty cannot be trusted, especially when it speaks in the name of a popular sovereignty. That's the aporia. Democracy needs popular will. But democracy will die if it is left to the mercy of this rhetoric of sovereign power. Because freedom is antithetical to sovereignty. And so there we were watching these leading public figures write to Rihanna against her. These same figures who had expressed some sort of vague solidarity with George Floyd's plight and those who had mobilized around it now spoke of sovereignty, a sovereignty of a country that cannot even vaccinate despite the world's single largest facility to manufacture vaccines, its own downtrodden. Of what use is sovereignty without an ability to protect your own, without the courage to count your own dead? That is the aporia we are talking of. In many ways, in this case at least, you see how national identity 
simply undercuts our humanity. That you can, and this is the modern, the quintessential tragedy of modernity, that we live under a system of states and nation states to which we must belong in order to have any rights at all. The moment you are stateless or you refuse your state, you are left without rights. That is why Hannah Arendt believes that it is the right to have rights and not the right to be subject to a nation state that we must think about again. And that right can come not from standard, seemingly stable markers of identity. For God knows, one can claim identity with an upper caste person or a Brahmin person or a Dalit person, and yet there will be strife. That solidarity has to be grounded in the fact that we all belong to and can speak a common language. And as Arendt would say, and something that is central to mutant, to our dialogue, that we still retain a common shared meaning in the words that we utter. That attempt to return to ourselves, not just a shared vocabulary, but a shared meaning of these words, as you say, and to tease out the often very fragile but crucial strands of difference between them is the work of mutant. It will take work, I think, from all of us because it is also a kind of indifference, um, indifference for one to the gravity of words that has brought us to this moment. To any listeners joining us for the first time, or if you have uh, missed a couple of our previous episodes, I would urge you to head to our episode on the letter N, where we deconstructed the idea of neglect as a political technique almost. Um, when we begin to think of neglect and indifference closely together, we begin to understand what Eshwari means when he calls this the neo-democratic condition or the constitutional rule of the majority without a soul. It is precisely to excavate a democracy with a soul that this project began and we hope that you will join us for the full ride through 26 letters of the alphabet and through the creation of this shared language and vocabulary. We'll be back with another episode of Mutant very soon. Till then, thanks for listening. Keep listening. <laughs>